Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. The word of the Lord for this day comes to us from Acts 1, uh, Acts 2, excuse me, verses 1 through 21. Let's listen closely to hear what God was saying to us. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven like a howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. They were surprised and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all the people who are speaking Galileans, every one of them? How then can each of us hear them speaking our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, as well as residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. They were all surprised and bewildered. Some of them asked each other, what does this mean? Others jeered at them saying, they're full of new wine. Peter stood with, other, with the other 11 apostles. He raised his voice and declared, Judeans and everyone living in Jerusalem know this. Listen carefully to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suspect. After all, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Rather, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young will see visions your elders will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders to occur in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be changed into darkness and the moon will be changed into blood before the great and spectacular day of the Lord comes. And everyone... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May God add a blessing to the hearing and reading and understanding of these words. Good morning again, everyone. Um, one of the great joys, uh, well, I should say I'm the pastor. My name's Emily. I'm the pastor here at Urban Village Church, High Park Woodlawn. And one of the many gifts of um, being in uh, a community such as this um, of folks who are willing to share their stories and, and to, to risk stepping out um, to enrich the, the body is, is that I get to have partners um, like Sharice and other folks that you've seen up here um, 
preach with me. Um, and so I, I, uh, I'm so glad to have you here, and I'm so glad that you all will have a chance to hear a little bit more about her own story. Um, I bring greetings from UVC Edgewater, which was where I preached last Sunday. Uh, they are aggressive clappers on the one and three, and uh, so it was a, it was a good cross-cultural uh, musical experience for me, but, uh, but God was praised all the same. So why don't we come together uh, in the spirit of that kind of inclusivity um, as we come to uh, a scripture that, that uh, confounds our minds um, as we think about what that demands of us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for this day, uh, what many people would call the birthday of your church and what others might have pinpointed as, as the demise of, of the old guard and um, the things that made Judaism great. Um, we ask God that you would uh, be present in this space and especially on this day that your spirit would flow freely um, throughout our hearts and minds that we might uh, be challenged and comforted, encouraged and um, decentered, um, so that we can have you at the center of who we are and um, step up and step into um, the new life and, and new truth that you are speaking into us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when I was growing up, uh, there were things that I knew were facts. Pluto was a planet. <laughs> Remainders were a legitimate part of a math solution. And babies slept best on their bellies. Now, as an adult, the world is completely upside down. Pluto is not a planet. Remainders are, I don't know what they are, but they don't go anymore to, at the end of a problem. Um, and now back is best for baby. You cannot even imagine the number of fights that new mothers are having with their mothers about this one single issue. What happened? How could all of these things that were once facts suddenly not be facts anymore? Isn't science, uh, as the protest signs uh, uh, proclaim, isn't science true? Uh, the answer, short, the short answer is no. Um, but you didn't pay all that money to travel all this way to hear the short answer, so let me unpack it a little bit more for you. I've recently learned that medical students are told early on, and I suppose uh, Ibro could, could confirm this, but they're told early on and repeatedly throughout their training in medical school that half of what they learn by the time they finish their program, half of it will no longer be fact. They just don't know which half. And the reason for this is that there is a kind of half-life to facts. Basically, as long as science, which is a process, not a truth, uh, a process for addressing questions through things like research, evaluation, critique, and peer review. As long as science does what it's supposed to do, there will never be any real forever facts. Everything is simply a fact that has yet to be overturned. And all of this might feel a little self-defeating, right? Like, why would I even bother to learn anything then if it's all just going to be proven wrong? Well, this is because the changes and discoveries do lead us to be less wrong about the world. In the podcast, You Are Not So Smart, which is where I kind of learned about all of this, um, they give this example. At one point, people thought the world was flat. And then, through scientific processes, it was determined that the world was a sphere. And then, through, after even more scientific processes, it's been determined that the world is more like an oblong-shaped sphere. Okay? The old facts are replaced with new facts, but not all facts are equal, right? I mean, believing that the Earth is a perfect sphere is not as factual as believing that the Earth is more oblong, but it's way better than believing that the Earth is flat. Got it? 
So why am I talking about all this? Well, because something really strange and inexplicable happened a long time ago that was disturbing and amazing and beautiful and theologically cray-cray, right? Jesus had ascended, the disciples had just replaced Judas, and they were, per Jesus' instructions, waiting for their next move. They knew that something was going to happen, but they didn't have a handle on things. It had been 40 days since the resurrection, and all they really knew was that things had gotten really weird really quickly, right? There were all these rumors about Jesus appearing in different places, on the road to Emmaus, on the beach, at the Starbucks. They had seen Jesus in person themselves. They had seen Jesus ascend to heaven. It was really, really weird, right? And maybe they started wondering as they were waiting for this Holy Spirit, whatever that was, that Jesus promised was going to be coming, maybe they started wondering about, like, where is all of this going? And whether or not the whole thing had just been kind of like a bust, right? Maybe they had started sort of like floating their resumes out to local fishing operations, um, checking Craigslist for used fishing equipment, just in case like the whole thing fell through, right? It had been an interesting three years, but even though most of them were probably illiterate, they could read the writing on the wall. Um, What seemed like a good, faithful, exciting risk um, began to sort of feel a little bit like it had all turned out to be a spectacular failure. And my spectacular failure goes a little something like this. I left a very high-paying job at J.P. Morgan Asset Management in 2008 to start a business. A few months before I left, I was promoted to vice president. I was working for one of the hottest mutual fund managers in the country. Our portfolio was $10 billion in assets, and I had just had a bang-up year picking stocks. And mine were amongst the top performers in the fund. If there were a song to encapsulate my feeling, it would be, this is why I'm hot. This is why I'm hot. This is why, this is why, this is why I'm hot. Yeah, y'all know it. (laughs) But I wanted to start a business because I had a couple of fundamental truths on my side. Even though I picked good stocks, I was tired of getting whipsawed by the ebbs and flows of the stock market. It's a very stressful job, especially when your stocks go down. I wanted to create something to solve a real problem that I had actually some control over, unlike the stock market, which I had no control over. Secondly, I was called to use my gifts and talents in a different way for a population that didn't have access to the same information that my institutional clients had access to. I remembered that I actually came to Wall Street to learn how to build wealth from the wealthy and use the knowledge for people that I actually cared about. I felt very confident that God's calling on my life would send me down a path of success. I learned from a very young age that too much is given, much is expected, and it was my time to give. So I said, two deuces (laughs) to the job. I didn't go right to starting the business. I decided to go to business school here in Chicago to de-risk the journey. Business school allowed me to meet other entrepreneurs and be in a community of people who knew about technology, operations, marketing, all the things that I had little exposure to. By the time I graduated business school in 2010, I was ready to go. I had saved money in the bank to start the business. I had a co-founder of the journey with me, and I had a fantastic idea. I officially launched my business called Smarties in the summer of 2010 and took the full plunge on the entrepreneurial journey. 
Smarties was going to revolutionize how young people manage their finances. George, my husband, would describe me like Tigger the Tiger. I was <laughs> bouncing up and down, super excited. Why? I had conviction in my idea. Remember, I felt personally called to start Smarties. God would not let me fail. In its latest rendition, which was the winter of 2013, Smarties was a web app that helped college graduates plan for their financial futures and recommend good products and services to help them have the life that they wanted. I say latest rendition because Smarties went through three renditions over three years. With each rendition, there was more money, more technology, more energy, more investors, more employees, and more time. But after the last rendition, we still had little revenue and profit. The market proved to be fickle. Sounded a little familiar. Young people, funny enough, didn't want to pay for good financial advice. Huh. <laughs> we could not figure out how to make a sustainable business. I was tired of trying so hard and coming up empty-handed. We were out of money, and we had a decision to make. We could either close or sell the business. Well, we spent the next six months trying to sell our business to anyone who had even an inkling of interest. In that time, I could feel things were coming to an end. I fell into a deep depression. I was grieving the loss of this business. Halfway through, I got a career coach to help me put myself back together again professionally and emotionally because she was part therapist too. I had no choice but to let my new husband, yes, I was three months into a new marriage when we tried to sell this business, see me in my full vulnerability. I started to tell my family and close friends that I was looking to close the business. I felt ashamed, a bit embarrassed. After those six months, we got no offers to buy us. So we officially closed Smarties in the summer of 2014, exactly six years since I left JP Morgan. My faith was shaken by the fact that my calling did not pan out how I had expected it to. I started questioning what journey I was on if it wasn't the Smarties journey. What and where would this all lead to? I had been faithful to God's calling on my life, but to what end? I asked and prayed about this. It would take another 12 months for me to make sense of the roller coaster journey that I had just been on, in which I had failed spectacularly. So while the disciples were in this space of a looming uh, feeling of spectacular failure, while they were trying to regroup and figure out um, what their next move was going to be, God made the move for them. They heard this noise outside and they went to investigate. They saw all these Galileans who scholars say were notorious for having poor language skills, speaking in languages other than their own, which personally I wonder if this was the Holy Spirit kind of working some shade on behalf of Jesus, right, considering the fact that it was Galileans who threw him out of the synagogue. But you didn't hear it from me. What I can say, though, is that the ones who did understand what these Galileans were saying were immigrants from some very non-Galilean places living in Jerusalem. And to underscore this, the author of Acts goes to great lengths to spell out just who was hearing these languages spoken. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, visitors from Rome who were both Jews and converts to Judaism, and so many more. And it was these folk who the author of Acts says were the devout ones. These were the devout ones. These were the ones who had to cling to their faith as they navigated life on the margins of Jerusalem, not 
speaking the language that well, picking up work wherever they could, making community with other immigrants, knowing that they couldn't just make it on their own. You know why their faith was so strong? Because it had to be. They were building a life in a hostile space that was all too happy to take these immigrants up on what they had to offer and all too willing to cast them to the side once they got what they needed. These Jews were strong in their faith because they knew a God who, who, who made a way where it's, there seemed to be no way. A God they knew who spoke their language, who whispered in their hearts when they thought that they, they couldn't go on, whispering, I'm here, I got you. They were familiar with living on the edge of failure all the time. But just because they were devout, it didn't mean that they understood what was happening to them and through them. They showed up and they experienced a deeply confusing moment where it became clear that faith as usual, as it had always been, just wasn't going to cut it anymore. In fact, they may have felt that what God was doing was threatening their only um, solidarity, their only foundation, right? And certainly this had to be the case with the Galileans who were no longer speaking their own language, right? It probably felt like a, a scary moment of selection. Why did I get picked for this? Isn't my life hard enough? These people as faithful as they may have been, probably were also disturbed by what was happening, right? Because the things that seemed right and true and factual in the world had suddenly turned topsy-turvy for them. What is happening? What did I do to deserve this? Why did I suddenly become a laughingstock? What does Kofifi mean? <laughs> and it was in this moment of confusion, of chaos, of fear, that we might do well in returning to our conversation about science. Because if science is a process for uncovering the more factual thing through a process of inquiry, in some ways, and maybe my sciencey friends might not really like this at all, I think that this could be very well applied to the life of faith. I think that there is a reason why it was the devout ones who were able to hear. Because the devout ones were the ones who can hold the half-life of spiritual facts with humility and with faithfulness. It's the faithful ones who remember that God's ways do not necessarily conform to the ways that we've always been taught. These were the ones who were most able, who had the greatest kind of spiritual elasticity and strength to hold what was happening, even if they were kind of freaking out. And it's okay to freak out and still be faithful. You can still be faithful and freak out. But it's not enough to be able to hold it. There also needs to be folks who can step up and people who know how to do all of this. People who can know what to make of all of it. This new thing that God was doing needed hands and feet and minds that were experienced in having clarity in the midst of confusion and faith in the midst of fear. God, had, God needed such as these to shepherd, guide, and bring into being what God was doing. And those hands and feet belonged to the disciples. Because in their waiting, however patient or impatient, however faithful or doubting, they were there and they were ready. All of their experiences, including the, the, the specter of a spectacular failure, including a time of unsure waiting, of not knowing what was going to happen next, all of this had equipped the disciples to step up and lead in this new thing that God was trying to unfold. So, I said that it took me another 12 months to make sense of that whole journey. It was a long, hard, deep kind of moment for me. And even as I was preparing for this sermon, I had a few additional revelations that only the Holy Spirit could conjure up and that time allows to bring to the forefront. You see, 
I had gotten caught behind the brand and company of Smarties and saw them as one and the same. So when it died, I died with it. But as I healed and God put me back together again, I told myself that a company would never define who I am ever again, even one that I would start myself. In 2015, I have repurposed my startup experience into a full-time job, which I call my day job, where I can use many of the lessons learned and still have the benefit of getting a paycheck every week. Yes, clap it up. <laughs> I work for a consulting company that is mission aligned and believes in wealth empowerment. They needed someone to start their Chicago office. Me, yes please. I am much more aware of how hard it is to start something new. Everyone tells you that it's hard and you're like, yeah, yeah, I got it. <laughs> and if we put aside the normal hard things, we are left with the ones that no one talks about. Psychological and emotional trauma and toll it can take on you and the people who love you and are around you. You often feel isolated and that you have to shoulder everything. I now take this awareness with me toward anything I start and try and put in the safeguards so that I can bounce back, just like that tigger, easier when things don't go as planned. For example, I've kept my career coach part therapist, and I let my family and friends more into the details of what's really going on, the ups and the downs in my journey. And in my circle of trust, I am reminded that I'm not above failure. I had never really failed at anything as spectacularly as Smarties. And it's the embrace of failure that I now take with me in everything that I do. God has also reminded me that I do have a unique way of sharing knowledge about wealth and in a manner that actually leverages my investing skill set. Specifically, the Smarties experience gave way to me creating a platform where I could speak write, teach, and produce content that takes people to another level when it comes to investing. Some of you know this as ShereeSays.com. I call this my night job, <laughs> where I write a blog and newsletter. I've launched a web series. I speak to audiences and get paid to do so. Though, not here, though, not here. <laughs> and I'm now teaching an investing class. I could not have envisioned the ShereeSays.com platform for myself before Smarties. Without Smarties, there would be no ShereeSays.com platform. I would not have given birth to this new beginning. Smarties was not the vehicle that God had chosen for me, but wealth empowerment still mattered, and it's now manifested in my day and night job. For now, it helps that I'm not dependent on ShereeSays.com to put food on the table. God is doing a narration of my own journey. I don't have to manage how it will look and how it will affect people. By virtue of the fact that he picked me back up, others will be affected and inspired by my journey. And I say this because I actually get reminders of this, whether through a text or an email of how my advice has helped someone. Most recently, I was sitting having lunch during my day job with one of my junior associates and someone who I'd never met before came up to me and said, are you Sharice? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. 
Um, he goes, I get your blog every week, and your advice has helped me build wealth. Thank you for writing. I felt touched. Through experiences like that and overall, I also have realized that my family and my friends could care less about what I do. They love me for me. Sounds simple, but it is true. I still feel the calling of my life. This fundamental truth has not changed because people still need access to information and tools to build wealth. It's just different than how I thought it would take shape and is still taking shape. I do not serve an outcome-dependent God. God does not want me to stay down. God wants me to be successful as he wants you to be successful and faithful in your own journey, which is a marathon, not a sprint. He wants me to channel all of that inner strength and resolve into this new season in my life. I continue to ask myself, if not me, then who? There's so many aspects about our lives, things that we or others might call failures, which are actually just part of the process of truth unfolding in our lives. The thing about it all, of course, is that it's really difficult to accept this, especially when it's happening, right? It's uncomfortable and sometimes painful to um, be confronted with more factual facts <laughs> and to endure the times of transition that these new facts require of us. There's a real sense of loss involved. For those Jews on Pentecost, there was probably a sense that they were losing their hold on what, was proper, on what was properly theirs, that they were losing grasp of the things that made them them. I mean, I have a real compassion for their situation. Like any disrupt, disruptive event, it created chaos, confusion, even fear. And if you read on, you'll see that the fallout and backlash would be far and wide. Many people died as a result of people's unwillingness to open their imaginations to what God might be doing. And depending on the way that you see it, the moment of Pentecost was an exciting innovation of God's vision or dramatic failure of epic and devastating proportions. The religious leaders would rather have someone, one of their own even, die than to inquire more deeply about what God might be unfolding in their midst. It's what happened to Jesus, and it's what happened to many of his followers on that day, after that day of Pentecost. And this is where I think that if Biggie was a pastor, right, he'd be rapping about how most spirit, mo problems. Because when the Holy Spirit moves, things are bound to get shook up in ways that threaten our sense of self and stability. Our understanding around the facts of faith are called into question, and the things that we know to be right are no longer a given. God's promise of wholeness of life is now for everyone, not just that select group of folks that had a promise made to them. What we do and our success rate does not determine our value and who we are and whether or not people in our lives love us. Remainders are no longer a thing, and Pluto is no longer a planet, right? The message of Pentecost isn't just one of the birth of a spiritual nation made up of every tongue, nation, and tribe. It's also a deeply distressing event that challenged the things that we were once so sure of. No one leaves the presence of the Holy Spirit unscathed. Everyone is confronted and everyone is encouraged to expand their imaginations about who they are, who they could be, and who God is. And for those of us who step up to the challenge, who rise to the challenge, we will find that our imaginations are set on fire as we, as we step out of our centers 
and learn to speak one another's language without having to forsake our own. And throughout all of the chaos and the confusion that gets created by the Spirit's movement, we can still find comfort, still be confident in the knowledge that it's simply a new expression, a more factual fact of an ancient and deeper truth. The center of who God is will always hold true. It's a truth that we recite at the table every Sunday, from dust we were created, to be loved by God with no qualifications, to partner with God in all ways, to allow our experience of of spectacular failure, our discoveries of more factual facts about how God moves to become the seedbed for something new to be born. How do we do this? We stay close to God into God's story. We build spiritual elasticity so that we can abide in times of spiritual disruption, discerning deeply where and how God is speaking. We come to church, we are part of small groups, we read scripture, we pray, we cling to the things that we know are true, believing and trusting that God will carry us through. And if we listen closely in the midst of the storm, I'm convinced If you listen closely, you'll hear in the midst of the violent winds and the disruption and the decentering, a voice whispering, reassuring you, I'm here. I got you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for those moments, those times of disruption, spiritual disruption, of of even spectacular failure. We thank you that you abide with us in the midst of violent winds of those times of chaos and confusion in our lives, in the world, that make us wonder what's happening and make us fear that we're losing who we are. Help us to hold ourselves close to the center of who you are, to be reminded that we are not what we do and that your love is for us too. Help us as we go forward from this place into a very chaotic and confusing world to remember that you love us and that you are with us and that no matter what more factual facts come along, that will never change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.